If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn them over to Daniel 7. This morning we will resume our study there and we'll finish out this chapter. As you well know, if you've been following with us, um, for those of you who have heard or maybe listened to it on the web, we've been looking at Daniel 7 and the specific prophecies. As we remember, this is the first chapter in the book of prophecy where Daniel transitions from primarily narrative, which is the story and the history of what's going on, to the visions that he saw that he saw and that we're going to find that the visions that he saw are not necessarily in chronological order regarding how he wrote them down. And so there is, as I told you, there is something theologically significant about the fact that he even gives us these visions not in chronological order is to establish the fact that he's not trying to create a strict chronological timeline. Like any good Hebrew... He is laying out for us a covenantal story of God, and he's putting it in the order that best tells the story. And so, as I've said before, the Hebrews thought more in covenant, the Greeks more in chronology, which is why you've got a difference in how the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, how it orders it, as opposed to the Hebrew Old Testament, because two are are getting at two different things. That's neither here nor there. What we're looking at this morning for the final uh, half of this chapter, the final paragraph, is the interpretation of the vision that Daniel has seen. And so he's kind of laying out for us, this is what these things mean and what they imply. He's kind of settling some of the mystery. And let's think of mystery in biblical context. What is a mystery in Scripture? It is something that only God knows that he reveals at, at, at the proper time. So Daniel, in some senses, is giving us the interpretation of the mystery. That's one thing he's doing. But in another sense, he's kind of reopening some more mystery that we'll have to chew on and that really doesn't get settled until the book of Revelation when we see the revelation of Jesus Christ and we see some of the pictures that Daniel begins to draw filled in by the revelation of Jesus, which is an exciting prospect that here, several hundred years before Christ is born, Daniel is telling us this is how it's going to end. And what does John, the revelator, in about AD 95, come back around and tell us several hundred years, oh, this is how it ends. And when you look at John and Revelation come together, it is a powerful testimony to the sovereignty of God and his capacity to speak to his people and give us hope in hard times. And so when we look at this, as I said before, as I'll say again, as I'll say right now, this book is hopeful. It is so hope-filled as it reminds us the truth of who reigns, who rules, and who is leading to a good end. And so with those thoughts in mind, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the scriptures. This morning we are looking at Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 to 28. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 
Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and will put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please play, pray with me. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the mystery, the majesty, but God, the hope, the hope that we see here. And I pray that it would fill us with hope this morning. I pray that it would renew our minds and transform our thinking, reshape our hearts, continue to draw us in closer to your kingdom to live your precepts so that we are transformed into your image. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I think many of you are probably familiar with the story behind the writing of the Star-Spangled Banner. If you are not, I'm going to tell it to you uh, briefly. So during the War of 1812, an American lawyer by the name of Francis Scott Key had aborted a British ship that was in the harbor outside of Fort, Mc Fort McHenry where Francis, or, or Key, had a friend being held there, and he was going to plead for his release. While he was on the ship, he actually did win the release of his friend, but while on the ship, they had also heard of the attack about to happen on Fort McHenry. And so the British, not wanting to let them off the ship so that they would not tip off the fort, that they were about to be bombarded through the night, the British let them off the ship, but they confined them to vessels in the harbor where they too would watch the... Uh, bombing of Fort McHenry from a distance, the bombardment of Fort McHenry, I should say. So they did. From their ship, they watched as Fort McHenry was just almost obliterated. And I think that the way that Key described it was like shells and sheets of fire filled the earth. And he absolutely expected when the dawn broke and he looked upon Fort McHenry he was going to see the Union Jack, the British flag, waving high above the fort because the bombardment was so brutal. Of course, we know the story. The dawn rose, and Key steps out on deck, and what does he see? He sees the American flag waving in the distance, tattered, torn, which, by the way, you can see that flag at a Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. I've seen it myself. He sees the flag waving, and he's so moved that he writes, of course, the Star-Spangled Banner. But what is it? What is it that, you know, if it gives you chills, this is American lore. This is one of the things that makes us proud to, of our country, of the courage and the bravery. But there's one word that comes to my mind when I think about men manning that fort, and it is steadfastness. Can you imagine having to hold your position, no sleep, remaining steadfast all night, trying to withstand an attack? that, logically speaking, you probably shouldn't. Well, they did. And eventually, America went on to win the War of 1812 because an army had been steadfast. Now, 
Beloved of God, I make no comparison between man and God. God is altogether different. But I love that story when we think about the, the surety and the steadfastness of people. It brought hope to the people. What do we have in God that gives us hope? We have a sure and steadfast God who rules and reigns on our behalf, much greater than the men at Fort McHenry, much more glorious than the sheets of fire and the shells filling the skies with lights, the God who is light, who is love, who is truth, who reigns on our behalf, who reigns with and in and for us. And so when we think about what we've just read here, it's kind of very similar to the middle of chapter 7, which is the throne room of God. Daniel puts that in there to remind us, amidst all the chaos and hurt and brokenness, there is God who rules and reigns. We are getting the end of the matter here. And why is Daniel doing that? Well, because he was given the interpretation, but why? To say that there is hope. There is a steadfastness in Yahweh. There is assurance in Yahweh that gives us as his people a real hope. Not a play hope. Not an empty hope. Not a hope that says, well, yeah, one day my life will be better. But a hope that says, I'm in pain and God is reigning and I'm not alone. You know, that type of hope, a real hope. And so the goal, as we've said, of apocalyptic literature, which is what Daniel is, at least here, is to remind us that we have hope in the Lord, even as our world descends into madness. We're watching our world descend into madness. Whether it's gender confusion or Afghanistan or a whole host of other things, we are watching a madness descend and take over our world. And what is our hope? Well, how will we live in it? We will live in it as the people of God, saved by the gospel, founded on the gospel, committed to his truth, knowing that our God is victorious. And he holds us fast, as we just sang. Kings and kingdoms, they come and go. The Lord is forever, right? Kingdom of darkness, it's going to prevail for a season, it even says that here. But the kingdom of light wins the war. Why do, we, why do we keep coming back around to this? This is not unfamiliar to us and Daniel. We've said this again and again and again. Why do we keep coming back around to this? Because this is the truth that we have to cling to in our most desperate hour. When we see the persecuted church around the world, our Chinese brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and different places, when we see all these people around the world, what, what is it that gives them hope? What is it that's, that's giving the Afghanis Christians hope right now? Is it that they're going to survive attacks from the Taliban? No. That's not what their hope is. Their hope is that God is a sure and steadfast hope to those who, whom he loves and are his people, and that in their most desperate hour, what is the truth that they have? That God is reigning, that God is ruling, that God is sovereign, and that, uh, sovereign and God rescues his people. He doesn't leave us to the destruction of our souls. So Daniel keeps coming back around to the steadfast love of the Lord in difficult times. In fact, if you ever just peruse the prophetic literature, even in places where there's some hard prophecies against both Israel and the nations, let your mind and eyes drift to the ends of those books where the prophet will often tell you, but oh, a day is coming. A day is coming when Yahweh reigns and rules and rescues his people. Why? Because they're always trying to tell us judgment is real. Persecution is real, hardship is real, but there is a steadfast hope that is like a, it's like a beacon of light in the midst of all that reality that is realer, I know that's not a word, that is realer than those things. It's more real, I understand. I know, I know English grammar. So we have this idea 
that the Lord is with his people. Daniel even says he's filled with dread. I mean, did you catch it? He says it twice, actually. He's filled with dread because of the pain that humanity has to face, because that he has to face. But he also sees in the midst of that pain that the Lord really is with his people. So here's what I'd say. Suffering is sure. If you haven't suffered yet, you will. And some of you probably more than you can possibly imagine right now. I've already in my life haven't suffered much, but I've suffered more than I ever thought I would. And there's yet more to to experience. How are we going to live in the reality of that? By understanding that the Lord is with his people and that suffering doesn't have the last word. You know what Paul would say to the 2 Corinthians? He says this later. What Paul would say to the 2 Corinthians in keeping with this is, hey, church, we are afflicted, but not crushed. That we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. That we are persecuted, but not forsaken. And we are struck down, but not destroyed. It was true in Paul's day. It was true in Daniel's day. And in 2021, it is true. And that's our hope. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this. Very simple. God is our sure and steadfast hope in hard times. That God is our sure and steadfast hope in hard times. You know, when ships are having to weather storms, most of us know this, of course, ideally they'd be able to find a harbor to get into or a natural harbor that would block winds and give them some respite from wind and waves. But unfortunately, ships can't always make it into safe harbor. They have one last hope against a storm that helps them not to be sent adrift or capsized, and it's an anchor. To be able to be anchored, and an anchor holds them fast against the waves. Now, it's going to push the ship. It's going to rock the ship. Water's going to spill over the side of the ship, so their ship may incur some damage, right? The ship may have some dents and bruises. The ship may need repairing. The ship may walk with a limp for the rest of its days, but it's held fast in the storm because it is anchored to something. And so what do we need in the storm? What does Daniel need here? We need to be anchored in Christ. Now, this is not an anchor that we build for ourselves or an anchor we manifest. It is an anchor supplied to us through the gracious love of Jesus Christ that keeps us against the storm. And yes, guess what? Waves are going to crash against us. The wind is going to move us. We're going to gulp in water sometimes that we don't want to gulp in. And we may walk with a limp. But isn't it interesting that God uses our wounds if we are attentive to help others in our midst who are wounded? So now that we become not top-down leaders, you listen to me, we become side-by-side walking together saying, I and my wounds are going to help you and your wounds. And we become, as one author said, wounded healers. It's a powerful story. This morning, what I want for us to understand when we think of preservation, I've kind of said something similar, even God's preservation, God's preservation is not without cost or heartache. God's preservation is not without cost or heartache. When we think of the ministry of Christ, who is the example par excellence of deliverance, I mean, that is the deliverer, the preserver, the redeemer, the keeper of his people, we see that Jesus not only, I mean, so often we kind of relegate his suffering to just the cross. And he did suffer there. He suffered there. But that's not the only place he suffered. He suffered temptation. He suffered ostracism. He suffered being uh, or, um, slandered and gossiped about. He suffered the very things that sometimes we think, well, maybe that's not a big deal, but the Hebrew says that he was tempted in every way and that his suffering was so real that it becomes 
an example for us to understand that suffering is true. And so God preserves you and me. God has preserved me in my life. He's preserved you and yours. My preservation has not been without cost and has not been without heartache. And so when we think of the gospel, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is beauty and and preservation there. But even that is costly. When Jesus tells us, if you would come after me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Beloved of God, that is a costly, heartachy reality. There's going to be cost there. There's going to be heartache there. When, so when we look at this, we're thinking about God's preservation. Let us keep the proper biblical perspective that even preservation is costly. Daniel starts out here, we get this quick overview. So verses 15 to 18, rather, kind of function as a a brief summary of what Daniel has seen. And then we're going to get into more specifics. So as I've used this language before, what it is is it's kind of a telescopic view of what's going on. And then the next paragraph is a more microscopic view. We get in a little bit closer. So Daniel gives us this succinct interpretation of the vision. We learn right here in verse 15 that Daniel's spirit within him was anxious or distressed and the visions alarmed him. So you have these two words, they distressed and alarmed me. Why does he start there as we're getting into the interpretation? What's important about starting there? Well, he's humbled. What he's he's looking at is the judgment of God unfolding, and it humbles him, it distresses him to see the reality of divine judgment fall. He's not rejoicing over the fact that even evil nations succumb to judgment. He's not rejoicing that people are utterly destroyed because of wickedness and evil. He's alarmed. He's distressed. He's actually responding rightly. He's reminding us we should never gloat in the destruction of anything or anybody, even our enemies, because it is a real sobering reality when someone comes under the divine judgment of God, and that is not something we take lightly. We don't joke about it. We don't laugh about it. We don't say, you got what they deserved. Because the truth be known, if we got what we deserved, we would be right there with them. When we see ourselves as we are and God as he is, we never have room to gloat in judgment. We thank God that he stooped to save us. So Daniel responds correctly. Now it says that I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. That seems so simple to me, but it's amazing how many different opinions there are on who this one is. It just seems plain to me it's an angel. Well, we've already been told there's a throne room with myriads upon myriads and, and thousand, ten thousand, uh, ten thousand, ten thousand angels. So Daniel approaches one that he sees there, an angel. And he wants to clarify what God's purpose is. He's asking, hey, I've seen these visions. Can you tell me what they mean? I want to know what I'm looking at here. And it's not just morbid curiosity. I really do think it's I want to know so that I can prepare or so that I can know how I need to live my life. In other words, I want to know so something else can happen, something positive, maybe even something transformative. So... We have this angel. Daniel says, I approached him, asked him. He told me and made known to me the interpretation. So we have that. And then we get these two succinct statements. These four beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. 
I mean, that's a very succinct interpretation to the visions that Daniel just saw. So he tells him these four beasts are four kingdoms. I'm sorry, four kings. So four beasts, four kings that represent kingdoms. Historically, I told you before, historically what most people thought, there is some variation of this, but generally, historically, people thought that the four kingdoms were Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And remember, I told you, if we're going to go with the fourth beast as Rome, we've got to nuance it a little bit, meaning that it can't just be Rome, given the divine scope and nature and how it's described. We're looking at something that Rome may have been an iteration of, but it is so much bigger than Rome because it is so much more vast and evil, and if you can believe it, more evil than even Rome was. And so we say the fourth kingdom is Rome, but we're going to put some little uh, asterisk there and say, yeah, but it's got to be nuanced. What really is he getting at? What, what, is, what is the arc of human history here, the arc of what he's telling him, what you're looking at? Well, what you're looking at is the power of creature versus power of creator. That you're looking at the, the story of human history being so often the power of the creature asserting itself against the power of the creator. So however we identify those, those beasts, it's really, I, I won't say it's completely immaterial, it's not primary. What's primary to understand is you're looking at the human history of man raising himself up in kingdoms, declaring his glory, not giving glory to God, and then succumbing to destruction. That's kind of what we're looking at here. That's what the, the four beasts represent. And so what is the summation of that? Well, God's people are victorious. That's what he says. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever multiplying the, the eternality here. And so what is, what is it saying about God's people that we have an everlasting kingdom? Now, why does he say that on the front end? What's the point of that? Well, we're looking at destruction, God's people. You're looking at destruction. You're looking at persecution. You're looking at death. But what God has in store for you is a, king that, that doesn't, or a kingdom that doesn't die, a kingdom that's not destroyed, a, a kingdom that death cannot take from you. So why does he do that? Hope. Hope. For where you struggle right now, that you will have hope that there's something more than what we're looking at. Something more cosmic is happening. The rest of this is all geared toward the fourth beast and the ten horns. So that he gives us this succinct little interpretation. And then Daniel moves in and says, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, and he begins to go back and reiterate how he's already described him. But what is he doing here? He's looking for clarity concerning the power, scope, and end of the fourth beast. Why? Why that one? Well, because even Daniel understood when he had the vision in the beginning that he noted it. This beast is different. Remember what we said? That when he describes the beast, it's not like anything. He doesn't say it was like a leopard or it was like a lion or it was like a bear. He just says, this is what it is. And so he understands that there is more to this uh, kingdom. He, he calls it, it's a different kingdom. That's the way he describes it. Different from all the rest in verse 19. And look how he describes it here. Exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. So it's this terrifying kingdom. It's this cosmic power. It's built for utter, absolute destruction. 
And then he says, and he goes on, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed to be greater than his companions. And so when we look at the ten horns here, later on he's going to call that other horn that comes up a different horn. We'll come to that here in just a minute. But these ten horns, it raises up this proud, strong horn that comes. And even when you have, so remember, horn is a symbol of power. And so even when you have these persons of power in place, there is another horn that comes up and it's more powerful than them. Still painting this terrifying picture of you have this devouring machine and you have this super powerful horn who kind of controls it all. Yes, it's terrifying. And so he's laying it out. He's laying out the, the picture for us. And then verse 21, this is key here. This is key part of the vision. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. How do we know now that this horn is not just a regular earthly king? We know when we understand that he says, as I look, this horn made war with whom? The saints, not the world, not the nations, not other tribes and tongues, a very specific set of people. A very, set of, uh, a very specific set of people to the point that they're marked by their allegiance to a God, not a king, not a nation, not a tribe, not an ethnicity, but to something supernatural. So now we're understanding that this horn is also something supernatural. Its goal is to do something supernatural, not just make war with nations. And so as we look at that, we are reminded of the identity of this horn, Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, that the man of lawlessness will come. We think of the horn in that vein, this, this being that is anti-Christ, this being that is not just anti-God, that's our world, this being that has a specific power and a specific identity because he wants to make war with God's people. And so what is Daniel beginning to lay the groundwork for? He made war with the saints and prevailed over them. That's what Daniel makes note of. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints. I'll go there in just a second. But this one wars with God. He wars with God's people. We're getting a glimpse of a cosmic battle that happens between good and evil, between God and the kingdom of darkness, between those who are saved as saints and those who live in the indulgence of sin and death. Beloved of God, we're seeing kingdoms clash here. This is what this one represents, the clashing of kingdoms. That is why this beast is greater. That is why this beast is a devourer. That is why this beast is different from all the other beasts, because this one comes not to win a city-state, but to win souls and to devour them, to utterly destroy them. C.S. Lewis in his um, screw tape letters, he has one of the demons talking, and he says something profound in there about the, the, the viewpoint of the demons is they see those whom they are attacking as food to be consumed. And it was an insightful thing to say because they're not people to be saved or, or lives to be changed. They're things to be consumed. That is what the kingdom of darkness does. It consumes. That's what it's designed to do, to consume. But we're told here in brief, again, we'll come back around to this, that God judges this one uh, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So we're told then that God judges this one and gives victory to the saints. And how is that victory expressed? Well, he gives them the kingdom. The one, this one attacked the kingdom 
This one attacked the saints. And so now the oppressed become the victors. The saints who had been oppressed and persecuted and killed and what he thought destroyed now rise up in victory by the power of God and possess the kingdom. That is God's evidence. That's the fruit of God's salvation as he gives them the kingdom. Now again, you see what he's doing. He's going back and forth. He's telling you about the little horn, or he talks about the fourth great beast, and he talks about the little horn, and now he's coming back in verse 23 to the fourth great beast. So kind of flip-flopping back and forth. It's kind of like going from scene to scene to scene to scene, and this is all coming together for one central point. So he says, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different, here we go, from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, trample it down, and break it into pieces. Yeah, beloved, so when we see that, we have to recognize there's something supernatural going on, something spiritually going on, that this is not just a kingdom of man, that this is a kingdom that is meant to give us this picture of this supernatural devastation and devouring that takes place. He moves in, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. When we think about these ten kings, let me encourage you, it's not, it doesn't matter who they were in history. That's not the point. Again, we're not trying to identify, well, one was Caesar and one was Nero. And no, no, it's none of that. That's not the point. Could, could we make an attempt, because we know the history of saying, are there some great candidates who might fit? Yeah, and we could. That's not really the point. The point is, is you've got these ten kings who do what? They rule in the spirit of Antichrist. They rule as those who are godless and whose design is not for God and not for his glory but for their own. So they're the very opposite of what Jesus came and was. These kings rule in the spirit of Antichrist. But then it says, out of the kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. We're back to the little horn, so now we're flip-flopping back again. He shall be different from the former ones. Again, there's that word different. You notice when you see words like that in a narrative, you, you, you need to make a little mental check mark because it's trying to tell us something. So you've got a different beast, you've got a different horn, and now Daniel calls him a different horn again. He's making a ontological statement. as a statement of being. He's different in his being from the others. He's different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So you have this different horn. And he humbles these three kings, but that's not all he does. How do we get to his identity? Well, here again, he speaks words against the Most High. He blasphemes. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So think of a garment. So think of a garment that's kind of put to the ringer and begins to become holy and thin and stretched and almost unusable because it's been, for lack of a better word, just abused or, or used greatly. And so the idea is he's trying to wear out the saints, to wear them down, to abuse them, and make them weak, and make them ready to tear asunder so that he can have victory. So we're getting his identity. So he humbles other kings. He blasphemes God. He persecutes the saints. But then it says he does one more thing, and he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, he shall think to change the times and the law. Some people have tried to connect this little horn with Antiochus, or Antiochus because he did come in and try to change the festal calendar of the Jews and try to change the laws to uh, mess up their religious activity and their religious heritage. Is that what it means? Possibly. 
But I wonder if there's something a bit more cosmic going on here. If we're looking at a being who comes in and who thinks of himself as a powerful one who is going to change the created order, who is going to reorder the creation or the order in the way that he sees fit to glorify himself. And when we take it like that, as I take it, we really are looking at this supernatural being who has arrayed itself against Jesus, who has arrayed itself against Yahweh, and he's coming to try to seize control. So when we think of it, let me encourage you to not try to think of a specific person so much as a specific power. So not a, not a person, but a power, a power that seeks to set itself up against Yahweh. And guess what else he does? He brings great hurt to the people of God. And what does Daniel tell us about it? Beloved, it's sobering. Daniel says that he allows it. Now let that sink in for a minute. He's arrayed himself against God. He brings great hurt to the people of God. And for a time, what does Daniel say? And they shall be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. And just so you know, there is also debate about how that's understood. Some people see it as just a, a non-specific span of time. Some people see a time, time, and half a time as three and a half years. And that coincides with some other views that they would share within the book of Daniel. How do I understand it? I, I see it not so very specific. Um, but that's okay. We don't, I don't know we have to be. The point is, it, whether you see it as specific or you see it as a non-specific set of time, the point to understand is that God is controlling when it starts and God is controlling when it stops. And guess who's controlling in the midst of it? God. The point is not for us to maybe ferret out the amount of time so much as it is to be reminded that God is in control. Even in our hardest times, God is in control. Even in situations like this, uh, George gave a great devotion last Sunday and, and, re and, and referenced Job and you've got to remember, as George pointed out, who was in control of that whole situation? God was. It was God who said, have you considered my servant Job? It was God who said, you can do anything you want to him, but you can't kill him. I mean, it was God who said those things. Why? Well, we can't get the full grasp of understanding why God does all that he does, but what can we take away from that? There are some things that God kind of clears up in the end. <laughs> I am the Lord. I am in control, and I will do things for my glory and for your good. So the why question is always the hardest and maybe the unanswerable question, but I think the point of the time, times, and half time is just to be reminded that God is in control. Now, he goes on. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Now, of course, his here is the little horn. So verse 26, what, is, what are we looking at here? Well, we're looking at the judgment of the, of the little horn, and we're told two things. His dominion passes away. He no longer rules like he once did. Then he is destroyed. That, that is his end. That's the point by saying to the end, that his end is destruction. That's what God reserves in judgment for this. Now, the question is, is what is Daniel looking at? At this point in the vision, 
How is he seeing the dominion and the destruction of the little horn come to pass? If indeed he is the Antichrist, which I believe he is, what is Daniel looking at? Beloved, we've already been introduced to the Son of Man here. What is Daniel looking at? He's looking at the ultimate victory of the Son of Man over the kingdom of darkness. I am absolutely convinced that when we see unfolding here is the Son of Man who comes by the Ancient of Days who sends him to ultimately defeat Satan and his kingdom and send death and sin to the grave. So, Brad, are you suggesting that Daniel is seeing the cross play out? It's exactly what I'm suggesting to you because Daniel is looking at the judgment of God on evil. And so we're seeing that through history, what does Satan do? He causes problems. He, he stirs up conflict. And all this is distilled down to Jesus' victory over Satan in the garden, or over Satan, rather, at the cross. And so what does this mean for the people of God? If Jesus defeats Satan, it fundamentally changes Satan's status and his power. When we look at Job, we see a freedom of Satan to come and go before the courts of God. We hear Jesus say in Luke 10 that he saw Satan cast down from heaven like lightning. We now understand that what Satan could do in former times before Jesus came back was blind and harry the nations into death. What has Jesus done for us in Christ? This morning, if you call yourself a Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, there is a fundamental change that happens at the cross. If you remember what it's like to live in sin and to live in blindness and then to come under the blood of Jesus Christ and have a certain blindness lifted up off you so that now I see things in a way that I didn't see them before and now I can see a pathway that leads me not into sin and death but into life and righteousness and Christ and, his, and the Holy Spirit is working in me, something fundamentally different has happened, something fundamental, so fundamental that it's different from how it worked in Job to how it works now. Because the gospel really is victorious over the kingdom of God. Brad, are you saying that Satan can't blind? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that Satan is very much alive and well. And we have to square with the fact that he still prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, then what is the difference, you might ask? The difference is, it's because of Jesus, the gospel, and the Holy Spirit at work in us. We can relate to him differently. We can fight the power of evil because the very spring of goodness, hope, beauty, and truth, and righteousness lives in our hearts if we're in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what Paul would say, a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That means that we can fight against sin by the power of Christ, and we can stand against Satan by the power of Christ. So when we think about this, what does the cross do? What has Jesus done for his people? He releases us from the blinding grip of Satan by the power of the Holy Spirit to see truth. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints, the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. In the Aramaic it says his kingdom literally shall be a forever kingdom. I mean the same thing, I just like a forever kingdom. And all dominions, all dominions, shall serve and obey him. All the dominions, every one of them, shall serve and obey him. 
So God breaks a power. He reasserts his own power. Jesus breaks dominion of darkness, gives his kingdom to the saints. A powerful reality, beloved. That is why. Do you ever wonder why Paul says in Ephesians 2, the way the language reads, that we are presently seated with Christ in the heavenlies? That we are presently seated with Christ in the heavenlies? But we're not in the heavenlies yet. But the victory is done. Satan has been cast down. And, and Paul is reminding us, man, we have an identity and a citizenship that is awesome if we're in Christ. That we are so sure already seated in the heavenlies. Lastly, Daniel says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. He says, my color changed, kind of like turned green. But I kept the matter to my heart. Why is Daniel alarmed? Because he sees the suffering of God's people over the centuries, and it makes him sad. It makes him anxious. Could you imagine having a vision of watching God, of watching your brothers and sisters in Christ just suffer, 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 suffer? I mean, if you walk away numb from that, you're a robot. Right? If, you, if you can walk away numb from that, we have no heart. I mean, we would be changed if we saw it. I can't stand to see some of the images from 9-11 of being reminded of the horror and terror of it. It's hard for me to look at it. I can't imagine looking at centuries of human suffering and not being like, ooh, man, I'm going to be sick. That's what Daniel's doing here. But what else does he see? That the people of God endure. And because of that, the steadfast hope that we have in Christ should help us rejoice and lament. This morning, I will tell you, there is much in this life that causes lament. In fact, I think Christians should lament and lament often. I think it's not a lack of faith to lament. I think it's not a sign of weakness to lament. I think, in fact, if you are not lamenting, it is a sign of a lack of faith and weakness because, you see, if we can't look at life and look at history and look at how things seem to be going and not lament, beloved, we're not seeing it. I mean, we are ravaged by disease. We're ravaged by death. We're ravaged by depravity. And, and we could go on and on and on and on and on with what we're ravaged by. And so lament should be a common experience. We should lament things. But the Christian, we have to lament differently, don't we? We have to lament differently than the world. Our lament is not given over to despair. Do you ever find yourself in a place of despair because the circumstance, the situation has so overwhelmed you, you fail to see that beyond this there's hope? I have a great illustration from the Lord of the Rings, but I'm not going to use it right now. <laughs> Actually, I am. <laughs> it's, it's too good. So there's this moment at the very end of the book where... Sam and Frodo, they're in Mordor, they're laying there, they are just, they're at the edge of Mount Doom, okay? So yes, all the doom you can muster, they're at the edge of Mount Doom. They're, Frodo's weighed down by the evil of the ring, they've been ravaged by just hardship, and I mean, I can't imagine the PTSD they must have had at this point. They're laying there, there's no water, there's no food, they're just surrounded by evil, and as Frodo is sleeping, Sam looks up, and for a brief moment, the clouds dissipate some, and he sees stars and moon. And he, Tolkien says in that moment, he's reminded that though they're surrounded by evil, he is reminded there is something good still. There is something good and glorious still that is beyond the evil. Beloved of God, what a beautiful picture of how we have to live our lives 
The whole point of Sauron was to convince his enemies to despair and give up. If that's a theme that runs through the book, that is what Satan would have us do, despair and give up. The hope of the gospel is sure. Satan is defeated. Satan is defeated in Christ this morning. The son has finished the work. Jesus says, to tell us die, it is finished. So we grieve, but we don't grieve as the world grieves because the king is reigning and ruling and he is leading us to a good end. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your mercy this morning and its, its power. Uh, thank you for the rich gift of your son. God, thank you for hope. And we admit that we don't always cling to it, that sometimes despair just seems so real that we feel like we can't get away from it. And yet, there is always the twinkling of stars beyond the clouds. There is always the picture of the wonderful creation of the wonderful creator that reminds us above and beyond all the evil and hardship in our world, we have a God who is with us. And so, Father, thank you. Help us remember that. Help us to live in the reality of that. And when we, when we are tempted to despair, help us to embrace the grief, to lament, but to remember that there is joy because you are ruling and reigning. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.